Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. My name is Ashley Loblassengame, and I am your host. Today, we have Renee Siegel. Oh my gosh, she's so awesome. Renee, originally educated as a marriage and family therapist in 1980 in Detroit, Michigan, has worked in the therapeutic field for 41 years. She's the daughter and spouse of family members impacted by addiction. Her father was addicted to drugs, and she later married a man who had a devastating addiction to gambling. Renee understands firsthand the impact addiction has on the family, and she shares incredibly intimate details of her story around what it means to recover from the effects of a spouse's gambling addiction that took everything she owned and more. In private practice now, Renee uses a pivotal tool she discovered many years ago called the Enneagram. After using it with hundreds of people impacted by addiction, it is clear to her that it increases self-awareness and tolerance, reduces shame, and applies to all stages of recovery. We believe it is important to talk about the effects of addiction on the family here at the Courage to Change podcast. Gambling is one of the more insidious problems that people face, and this podcast and this story were incredibly eye-opening to hear from a woman who literally lost everything. Her husband was an attorney who put every debt he ever had in Renee's name, so when they divorced, she stood in bankruptcy court facing hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt that she knew nothing about. Can you even imagine? Oh my gosh. Well, she lived through it and came out the other side better than she started. The episode is really amazing. I am definitely going to have to have Renee come back because she is just that amazing, folks. So we started this episode by dropping into the conversation that I was having with Renee. We've never started an episode like that before, but it felt like the right thing to do here. And I hope that this little change is enjoyable and doesn't throw you for a loop. So without further ado... Episode 42, let's do this. You know, what, what, what has, have you ever experienced anything like coronavirus? And most people say no. I mean, most people, there's nothing really that even comes close. No, no. Nope, I was in the stadium during the San Francisco earthquake. That was nothing compared to this. No. You were in the stadium. I was in the stadium when the game was getting ready to be played during the San Francisco earthquake in 1989. Yeah. <gasps> or 80. Uh, yeah, 89. Yeah, 89. Yeah. Oh my gosh. What was mm-hmm. that like? That was, uh, I think that was probably, it was really traumatic actually because when I came home, well, there's a lot of things that were traumatic about it. You know, one of the things was that Everybody in the world knew what was going on in San Francisco, but we didn't because the only power we had was through transistor radios and also through a generator that you could see one generator at the San Francisco General Hospital in the middle of San Francisco that was the only light on in the entire city after the game was played and it got, I mean, it was canceled and it got dark and we got back to our hotel. People were looting uh, stores everywhere and at the same time, you know, very young people were helping really old people with things that you saw humanity, like the best of humanity and the worst of humanity at the same time. But today, even today, when I go to a stadium and people are like, you know, putting their feet on the ground and making noise. Oh, uh, it, yeah. Oh, yeah, I, sure. I get it's just does something yeah, to me. 
You know, it's interesting about that. I, you know, having grown up in the day and age of, you know, I was very aware during the Columbine shooting. I was young, but I was, you know, definitely uh, paying attention by that time. And, you know, in this day and age, for me, going to any concerts and stadiums and play, I mean, when I went to go see Hamilton and all of that, I am extremely aware of exits for uh, shooters that at my, my, when I hear noises or, you know, you're, a, you're a equivalent of the, the stadium rumbling is my active shooter sensation of time to go. Yeah. Yeah. And that was something that you just heard about and experienced in your lifetime, not something that we were there. Trauma is like amazing. It's seriously amazing. It's been probably the gateway for us to understand the mind body experience too. So that's absolutely, another, yeah. absolutely, absolutely. Well, I'm really grateful to have you um, on the podcast and, and thank you so much for <laughs> sticking with it. I appreciate it. You're very welcome. So you're in Scottsdale right now. We'll just jump into it. Um, you're in Scottsdale. And how long have you been in Arizona? 32 years. Oh, wow. Okay. And where were you before that? Well, I was born in Michigan okay. and uh, spent a few years after that in Kentucky while my dad was in the service, moved back to Michigan. I went to school in North Carolina, came back to Michigan for my graduate work, and then moved to North Carolina. Okay. I mean, okay. sorry, to Arizona. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And uh, what was your family growing up in Michigan like? What was your family of origin like? Well, it uh, my family, oh, my parents were first generation American, uh, Eastern European Jews. And um, so it was kind of interesting because my grandparents didn't speak English well. One of them didn't and one spoke English very well. And the ones who kind of came in and out of our house. And then on the other side, both of my grandparents spoke English very well, but none of them were. One was born in this country, came here when she was really little, but the other three were not. So my, for all intents and purposes, I was a first, my parents were first generation Americans. And that influence was really, really strong in our household. Right. When you say influence for people who don't know, what does that look like? Well, I think every culture brings an influence. And in this particular uh, area of the world, it's, you know, you always respect your elders. Uh, children are to be seen and not heard. Some of the things that are pro were probably true of the generation uh, at hand, but more value on women keeping house and having really uh, having strong the strong domain in the household and supporting men silently. And if you want to ask a question of someone, you ask it of their spouse because it's not appropriate to directly communicate, which is a real issue in terms of transitioning wow. into American culture. So yeah. even even my father's deceased, but my mom's still alive. But when they were both alive and I would call my folks, I would ask my mom how my dad was doing. And I would ask my dad how my mom was doing, because that was the appropriate cultural kind of way to engage in conversation. So that's probably the most distinct about that Eastern European piece. And certainly a lot of cultural cultural, other cultural stuff too. But my father was an addict and um, he was a professional and uh, he was a dentist and he was writing uh, scripts and all of our prescriptions and all of our names. And so when I was growing up, I just thought he was a rageaholic. I knew nothing about addictions. People were drinking responsibly in the house. And at that point in time, there wasn't even a, a conversation about uh, the differences between prescription drugs and alcohol. You know, you had 
drug addicts, which were like not taking prescription drugs, they were using like street drugs. And then you had substance abuse addicts, which were alcoholics mostly. And there was there wasn't even a conversation at that point in time happening between the two of them. And, and I didn't see any of that. I just saw a lot of rage. And my dad was writing scripts for benzodiazepines to the tune of our entire family, um, like all the members of our family and taking them the equivalent of, of that prescription for eight people was just he, for himself a month. Did you have any idea that he was writing those scripts or that was something you found out later on? Something I found out later on. Yeah. So you said that you thought he was just had a lot of rage. What did his rage look like? What's the difference between anger and rage? Well, that's probably another cultural influence too, because anger probably isn't even allowed, but rage is clearly a a much more intense experience of anger and it's far more out of control and irrational. And so um, even though anger wasn't allowed, rage was clearly (laughs) an intense experience. So so anger wasn't allowed for us to uh, express women uh, couldn't express it anger. Men, okay. it was very, very okay for men to express anger. In fact, kind of a, a very acceptable rite of passage, I think. Interesting. Okay. Unfortunate, but true. And um, he would come home and it was just like, we never had any idea what his mood would be like. And most of the time, because of his other addictions, he had uh, a behavioral addiction to he had a sexual addiction. Uh, sometimes he didn't come home while we were awake, but if we were awake or if it was days off, it's day off. He was Wednesday was a day off, so he was generally there after golf or bowling or whatever he did on Wednesday. And when we came home from school, and then on Sundays he was always there. He was the designated person to pick us up from Sunday school, and it was there was just always this wrath to to deal with. And if we were awake when he was done with work, there was this wrath as well, and it was always a physical. Uh, he screamed a bit, but my mom was more of the screamer, and my father was very, very physically abusive. So the rage, the rage was violent. It was very physically violent. Yes, towards you, towards uh, three of my four brothers and sisters. My youngest brother, he seems to have grown up. So many people say that you know every, every sibling has a different experience, right? So true. Yeah. yeah, but he seems to have grown up in little Leave It to Beaver land. I mean, uh, wow, he didn't have the same experience. That the first three of us did. That's yeah. very. It's that's often the case with the youngest. It's interesting. And so you said that your mom was often screaming. How when she was expressing anger, was that considered inappropriate? She just couldn't. I mean, I think. Well, for myself, I can only speak for myself. And I think my sister may have the same experience. Maybe not my brother. My older brother with that experience, their age. I think my mom was just. She didn't drive when we were really small. And she had four kids, three of us within three and a half years. I think she just really felt out of control. It was like, and he was never there. So it was always wait till your father gets home. So her only outlet for her, you know, pent up experience and stress and everything was to tell him. And then she was terrified of what he would do, but she would still tell him. So it was like, I, it was a real, I didn't, I don't think I put all of that together in the way that an adult puts information like this together until I was much older. She didn't protect us either at all. And I don't think she felt like she had a way out. She didn't have to, you know, she was a homemaker and um, she was fine with us when we were really well behaved. I mean, she, she didn't rage until things felt really out of control, but she certainly didn't protect us either. Yeah. What 
brought you to the understanding? You said that you didn't find this out till later. When did you realize that dad had a, you know, drug addiction and not just rage and sex addiction? Well, I was actually, I I was trained as a marriage and family uh, psychologist in Michigan and went on to work in a substance abuse treatment center as my practicum. It was the only paid practicum. And I needed that because I was putting myself through my master's program. And so the paid practicums were in really undesirable areas. So I was working in downtown inner city Detroit. I mean, it was pretty, pretty rough where the, you know, the pimps would call their ladies from one building to another. I mean, it was just, it was, it was really, really crazy, but it was a great way to be uh, a student of what was going on in substance abuse and a real reality right, check I'm for, sure. for somebody who was raised in the suburb in a relatively privileged situation to watch this and really experience, you know, some of the depravity, depravity right. of humanity. It was just really kind of, uh, really and not just hard. read it. So I, after that, no, not just read it in a textbook. No, no, it was, it, I was trained. I had the, I had some of the hardiest training to do what I have done of anybody on the planet I know. And um, so I left my practicum and went to my first paid job at Henry Ford Hospital, teaching hospital in Detroit, a big hospital. And they were just, they had a ton of different programs for substance abuse and mental health, very, very progressive in their, in their work back then. And I was in the program and they placed me in a substance abuse program for my for my first job. And I thought, well, I wonder why I'm working in substance abuse. I, I don't get, I mean, nobody in our family has a drinking problem. And, you know, people have the five o'clock cocktail, but nobody goes to bed drunk. Nobody's seems apparently wasted via substance abuse. I had absolutely no clue what was going on until I went to, went to pick up some prescriptions that my father had written and I found that he had written prescriptions in each one of our names. He had so this sent is years later. Way later. I am now 25 years oh, old. Wow. Okay. So this one, I mean, that's never put, never put this together. Yeah. Never put. And because again, I think, you know, the difference between pers- taking someone taking a prescription drugs, prescription drug in the 1970s, somebody using heroin or cocaine was they were just not even seen as similar. Today we understand that. Today we understand the concept of chemical dependency. We understand substance abuse as meaning as meaning alcohol and substances. We understand addictions as process and behavioral and and substance as well. But that conversation wasn't even a conversation back then. It was just not even in I think in most people's like awareness. Yeah. And, yeah. And benzos which he was taking abusively were even today are very, very, it's a very under discussed yep. addiction Yeah, and the rebound effect of it and oh, the difficulty oh. of getting off of benzos yep. is again, a very under discussed problem with a very overused. I mean, we may have, we may be currently responding to an opiate crisis, but yeah. we are not responding to the Xanax yes. and Valium and Librium and Benzoprine. Yep. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a, a couple comments on that. Number one, even in even when I was using that, this was the case regarding prescriptions. Which so it, I mean, it, it feels very recent that we're even starting to say like, okay, prescription is just a piece of paper written by 
someone who doesn't have all the information giving you drugs. You know, it's not, we're, we're not convinced by this. But even so, I mean, that was, I mean, it has not been that long since we have recognized the the severity of that. And I do totally agree with you with the benzodiazepines. You know, it's funny when I think of, you know, people remember Stevie Nicks and her, you know, her bout with benzodiazepines. And I feel like we don't, that that's like the one famous person that we talk about in terms of benzos and the severity of it. I don't feel like we really have addressed and that people really understand how serious it is and how you, as particularly the combination between alcohol and benzodiazepines and how that's a deadly combination to detox from. And I, I see people getting Klonopin for sleep all the time. Um, just, you know, take this, see how it goes, not understanding the long-term effects and and doctors prescribing it as a long-term solution. Yeah. And, and th- there's another aspect of this argument that I think is kind of an important piece. And that is that most benzos have a very, very long half-life have a very long half-life and right. they are actually used to detox people from alcohol because alcohol, unlike most other drugs, crosses three barriers and is the most fatal detox when somebody's in late stage addiction. DTs and seizures can be averted or avoided or diminished through the use of these long half-life benzos. And that's where they gained, I think, some significant popularity in terms of being used kind of in a medical model other than just for an acute stressful or even chronic stressful situation. Yes. So, you know, there there's value, just like there's value in so right. many medications if they're used you right. know, for that purpose responsibly as a medication. But clearly, you know, we have a fear-based uh, society that's growing right now with this whole, whole coronavirus piece. And, and we have a lot of people who don't understand the uh, drug interactions. I mean, there's just so much we don't know. Yeah. it's. In, I'm at Johns Hopkins right now finishing my MBA and I am in a lot of courses with various doctors of various specialties. And I I, I was talking to a doctor who's a pain medicine specialist in one of my one of my uh, residencies, and asking him questions regarding, you know, what he does. Basically, just what you know. How do you how do you think about working with pain management clients? What do you you know? How do you think about giving Suboxone and all these different things? And he basically had no formal tra- seriously a pers- a a pain. He's a pain management doctor uh, with a practice in New Jersey no formal training on it. And I, I, it was one of those things that was so shocking to me that I had to kind of end the conversation because there was just nowhere to go with it. And he, um, he was just handing out, you know, various Suboxone, very, you know, various things, which work well if you understand all the different aspects of it. But he just didn't, it was just, it was like he had just landed in that specialty and he was on um, some board and I and I've heard that story that similar story like I had you know one day of training or whatever it was exactly and 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 people and then they're handing out you know changing the course of hundreds of people's lives so interesting and when I was at back at Henry Ford so this is again in the early 1980s the uh, statistics at the time and I can't imagine they're not either the same or higher today, where that seven out of every 10 people have been 
either using themselves or are impacted by addictions. And if that is a statistic, and that is true, that 70% of all people are impacted in some way by some sort of addiction, you would think that medical training might pay some attention to how addictions work or affect even a family practice, let alone, I mean, we know that about 3%, 1 to 3% are actually addicts. But you take that and you multiply that by all the people that have been impacted for every person who has an addiction. And that's not a surprising statistic at all. And yet our medical community gets very, very, very few hours in their entire medical school of addiction training sad. It's really sad. And I think that's why we often seek out, uh, you know, in our, in our field, we seek out people who have a lot of training and who have, you know, I, I always, we always laugh about how many letters we all have after our names. And, you know, in part because the basics really don't give you the training that you need the, you know, the basics of, you know, if we just took your marriage and family therapy you know, training just on its on its face without your experience in downtown Detroit and all of the other things that you've done, you know, it's not enough to really understand this particular problem. Um, and I, I really, I always tell people like, find someone who knows about addiction. If you're going to go, you know, if you, if you, if that's what you're working on, find someone who knows about that because it is, it's not just a day long course. It's not, you know, there's, this is a, it's a complex issue. And, you know, it's funny when you're talking about the, you know, the, the, the effect, not just the people who are using, but the amount of people it affects, you know, I was, I was thinking of all the, uh, of all the maps and graphics and models that we're seeing come out about coronavirus and how many people it's affecting and even even just the numbers and if you look at that and you apply that to addiction i mean you could probably put it right on top and it would be quite quite the same i mean obviously it's i don't know that um i'm not going to speak to the numbers on deadliness or <laughs> the effects but cuz I, I i can't speak with any intelligence to that but i can say that looking at you know looking at those models i it's very similar to what we're dealing with with addiction in terms of how many people it affects Yes. And you're speaking to my journey in terms of all those initials. I mean, I, I went on to become a holistic healthcare practitioner and a licensed massage therapist yep. <laughs> and a coach and then the certification of a coach and understand gambling because of another part of my story that we'll probably get into and and also a licensed substance abuse therapist and a master's addictions counselor because substance abuse was not all the addictions. And I mean, all of it was really to answer one question is why can't people get well and stay well? And, you know, it was, that's been the big, big kind of focus of my, my journey. I love that you mentioned stay well, because it, because I, I talked to a lot of people about that. There's a lot of, a lot of, you know, it's like I can stop, but I can't stay stopped, get well, stay soft, you know, all that. So, so tell us, okay, so you go and you realize now, are you picking up a prescription for yourself, and then you realize your dad has written a prescription in your name? I'm picking up prescriptions at a store, and I find out that the prescriptions that I'm there to pick up are actually, I don't remember if there were six or I think there were six prescriptions for the exact same drug written in each one of our family members' names. Wow. So what do you do with that information? How does that, uh, where, where did you go from there? Well, I did a couple of things. I went to um, I went to the owner of the store and had a conversation with him 
which fell on deaf ears. And then I went to my father, who was filled with rage. Oh, I'm sure. And uh, accused me of just a bunch of stuff. And then I went to the um, psychiatrist on our unit and had a conversation with him, which was probably the most helpful conversation of all because he himself was a doctor and he himself had been, uh, had his own personal story of recovery. And he really helped me to have another and a deeper level of understanding of, of a series of things about addictions. But more than anything, I think he was probably the first person that opened my eyes to maybe that's why you're here. On this unit. <laughs> right, right. And maybe that's why you are here to create family programs. And that portal was, it was almost like that portal became opened to, to understand things in a way that has continued to unfold for me, and, you know, all the way to how do I take personal responsibility for my own recovery? I mean, it's almost like I got tagged, you're it, you know, because of the addiction being in the family. Right. But that anger is, is my father was buried with his own rage. And yet that's the, the consequences and residue of that have lived on in our family in a lot of ways. And, and if you, if I'm not aware of that and I'm not willing to take personal responsibility for my own responses to that and engagement around that. And I'm not just talking about professionally because I serve tons of people impacted by addictions, but I'm talking about in terms of my own day-to-day life. Yeah. Then I, you know, I'm falling short and family programs, you know, started out initially to be a support system for the person in recovery. And they have loved it. Wonderfully, they've morphed into, evolved into a place where it's a combination finally of how do I support the person in recovery? But that really comes second to how do I really take care of myself? as the addiction has entered this, you know, this area of our family, something that was really never paid attention to in the 80s at all. You know, it's like either run the other way. Right. Um, abandon ship, especially if you're a male and you have a female addict in your family, that was clearly the message, abandon ship. Or, you know, what do you do to continue to play the martyr and support and engage and enable, you know, we didn't even understand codependency in the way that we do today. So yeah, things have come a long way. Yeah. It's, uh, it's interesting that you talk about with the family because it's one of my favorite parts of working in recovery is seeing the family get well because the family comes in and, you know, their hair's, their hair's on fire because, you know, they're trying to manage the, the addict and they think they're there with no other problems other than my loved one is using and then they get well. And I saw it happen in my own family and it was, it was just, you know, the people who needed to help me took me in and then my parents and my family and my sisters. And now we have a common language together that is invaluable in every other scenario of our lives. And, you know, my sobriety is my responsibility, but we have this family dynamic. We healed these family wounds that, you know, were, were hurting everyone, not just what I was doing. So it's, I I love the, the, the family work that goes on in our industry. Yeah. And without it, you know, the likelihood of somebody making it is pretty low. Yeah. It's so (laughs) true. It's so true. So what happens after you realize, okay, I'm here for a reason. My, you sort of, you uncover your family of origin story. 
So uh, my dad and I actually open up a bit of a dialogue because although he's unwilling to discuss substance abuse concerns, he's very willing to triangulate me, and I don't understand that at this point with my mom and their marital concerns. And I move into a state of being the secret keeper, um, knowing what's going on with each of them individually and wanting them to collectively heal their experience, but not really knowing what to do. Even, even trained as a marriage and family therapist, probably, you know, it's just you don't have the objectivity to look at your own, your own life. And plus my dad is screaming out, and I'm not talking about literally now, uh, internally because he's willing to acknowledge that he's depressed. Okay. So depressed, depressed and anxious. So I figure, well, at least he's willing to open a conversation with me around depression and anxiety. And I ask him if I can, you know, take him. I go, I work in a hospital where there's like amazing mental health services. Can, can I take you in to see somebody? He goes, well, maybe. So he reluctantly agrees okay. to go see somebody. And he starts doing some work around his depression and anxiety. And they attempt to slowly titrate him off of his benzos. Oh, wow. And he's okay. been using them for so long that he has a rebound effect, which I'm sure nobody really understood at the time. And they talk supplement about that. now. Well, the rebound effect is that so he'll titrate down and, and or attempt to slowly diminish the dosage and come off of it. And as he does, more fear shows up. Uh, more anxiety, more panic attacks. The symptoms that the medication, so the rebound effect, right? The symptoms that the medication is trying to treat. To treat, it actually come back screaming. They come back that much worse. That's the rebound yes, effect, yes, right? Okay. Yes, It's the same with pain meds, too. You yep, get the right. same thing with pain meds. So um, they, they attempt to then create a cocktail of medications for him with antidepressants and try to titrate him off. And I'm still, you know, I, I still hold out with, particularly with my interest in physical and medical issues, underlying medical issues, about the, the effects of metals, heavy metals in one's body and how all of this is working together. Because part of my interest in holistic health has been to kind of investigate a lot of different things. And so I would send him articles, well-documented articles from medical journals about certain things. And he would tell me to mind my own business because I wasn't a physician. <laughs> and, and he made some progress in talking therapy. He made a little bit of progress in therapy with medication, this, the medication cocktail. But something took a turn for the worse. And all of a sudden, he became very suicidal. Now, I'm not living at home anymore. I'm married. So I'm not in the house seeing all of what's going on. Okay. And so we take him back into the hospital. And he's there for, I don't remember if he was there for observation for a day or two, but not much longer. And they send him home with another mixture of medications. And what I've come to find out is that although he's being titrated off of the benzos, and he's got this cocktail, he's now supplementing with alcohol. So now we have this mixture that becomes really potentiated, really deadly, and really out of control. And he's because nobody's asking about his drinking and only paying attention to the prescribed medications, nobody is really getting that the dangerous situation that he's in. And the only way I found out about this, that his alcohol intake had gone up is he, we had a boat and that we, we all went to the boat every, we have very short season 
on the boat in Detroit. And <laughs> yeah, put the boat in on, on Memorial Day, you take the boat out on Labor Day. So yeah. you're there for like three or four months. And so consequently, because this very, very small window of time is available for the family to gather, we're all there every weekend. And I watch his drinking and go, wow, I've never seen my father drink like this. And so mm-hmm. I, I'm always the bearer of the bad news. You know? <laughs> yes, <laughs> so, I do know. So I go, dad, you think that, you know, you, your drinking is like these Manhattans used to be like one a night and now they're like five a night. You know, if you think oh, wow. something's wrong here, you know, just mind your own business. So I'm just minding my own business. And ultimately I ended up just pulling away. I suggested things like Al-Anon to my mom. I suggested AA to my dad. I talked to my father about meeting with other doctors in recovery. And then I just really began my own journey of taking care of myself because what I realized was that I was just really a mess, a hot mess, mm-hmm. a hot mess. My own marriage had had some very, very interesting <laughs> twists and turns. I ended up going through a divorce and uh, remarrying very shortly after and moved out to Arizona. So I want to touch on your first marriage because I I actually know some people who have been through this and it's not something that's talked about and there's not a lot of support. And particularly, I don't know if you had this experience, but particularly in first generation families, it seems to have, it seems to be difficult. So your first husband ended up being gay. Is that correct? That's correct. My father was a womanizer and I wanted nothing to do with anybody who had interest in other women. Talk about watch out what you wish for. (laughs) Right. Right. So, and so, and as you know, did the first generation experience, you know, I guess I should back up and say one of the things that I have seen in the people where this happened and it was first generation was that the family blames the woman for the husband being gay. Oh, there's no doubt. His family was, it's interesting. My ex-husband's family was, um, one of his mother was not even a first generation American. She was actually born in Germany. His father, father was, had been in this country for, uh, I think a couple of generations, maybe several generations, but he was really very reserved. Both of them were very reserved. One was German heritage. One was English heritage. And they just kind of really, uh, didn't, didn't emote very much at all. And when I um, divorced Jim, my first husband, after finding out that he was gay, my parents who absolutely loved my husband were very disappointed in me. And his family never disclosed the reason that we divorced. And so all of his cousins, we lived in a small suburb outside of Detroit at the time, and all of his cousins assumed it was because I had an affair. And until about three or four years, because I was really outgoing and he was kind of reserved. And probably quite flirtatious and just, right. you know. Yeah. And um, so it wasn't until he came to an event about five years after our divorce with his personal partner that they started uh, contacting me and going, oh, my God, we made this assumption that you were stepping out in your marriage because I never shared anything with anybody other than my own parents about what was going on. I was devastated. I had my second child. I had a, I had a four-year-old and my newborn daughter who was three months old was, they were the preoccupied, my preoccupation when I went through my first divorce. I mean, I was just, I was devastated. So you had two children with him? Yes. And how did you find out that he was, how, how did this happen? How did this unfold? 
Well, we were in marriage counseling because I was, you know, far more interested in having us being sexual, sexually active with him than he was with me. Right. And um, I couldn't figure out why that was. I mean, all my girlfriends were saying, you know, God, I wish my husband would leave me alone, you know, and my husband wouldn't touch me. And I thought, you know, there's, there's got to be something wrong with me. So I actually went to therapy and then my therapist asked to see both of us. And he went in maybe once or wouldn't go back. And so I'm in therapy trying to figure out what's going on and trying all these things and doing exactly what the therapist suggests and backing off and providing space and moving in and trying to engage and open a dialogue and and nothing's happening. And then my husband decides, even though he's not interested in going into marriage counseling with me, he decides to join a men's group. He says that this is going to be all... I'll explore you okay. know, my issues alone in a men's group. Okay. Oh boy. And we were, we were part of a um, interdenominational spiritual uh, group, a really lovely group that really entertained holding space for people to have their own spiritual experiences in the eighties. And so that's, that's how he came up with the spirit, this men's group, which I, because we were part of this community, I thought, well, this is a perfect, you know, he doesn't want to talk to my rabbi. He doesn't want to talk to his priest. He's actually decided to convert to Judaism, and now he's going to join this men's group. So I thought whatever he's willing to do at least is a step in the right direction. And so he's part of this men's group, and I overhear a conversation, and what I, and what I think I hear him sharing with somebody that he's had some emotional feelings for, this other man. And so it's my it's so odd. You know how you, you're, you're like frozen in time when you have an experience like this. I you, step out of the shower. I yep, remember yep. dripping, oh, yeah. dripping wet. I remember putting a towel Wait, so you heard him on the phone? Right. Okay. Okay. Right. Okay. I him on the phone. And I walk out of the bathroom and into the family room where he's talking. And I said, full, his full name. And I said, are you gay? It was almost like the light bulb went on in my right, head. Right, right, right. And he turns to me and we have a three-month-old baby now and a four, almost four-year-old son, just under four years old. And he says to me, I would prefer to call myself a homosexual. Oh, dear Lord. And, and it's like, do you remember like the feeling in your body of, or like, I went at, there was a series of things that I can talk about uh, without a lot of recollection. I mean that day. And then like three months from then, I can give you some description things that happened between a week after that. And the next three months is like, it's like I was in a blackout. I have absolute or brownout. I have absolutely no idea what happened. So that day it was July 2nd or 3rd. It was right before the 4th of July. And I got on the phone to call my gal squad. (laughs) I called every gal pal I could think of on the planet. And only one of them was in town because it was a 4th of July weekend. And absolutely landlines, absolutely no cell phones then. Right. And she was just as surprised as I was. And Uh, was going away for a family gathering. But today we're, you know, she's one of my besties and we've had lots and lots and lots of conversations about what that was like. And she said, I have never heard you that devastated in my life. I was just, it was almost like it was, it was surreal. It's like the, I was going to say it's like the coronavirus, except, you know, (laughs) that's kind of surreal. Gay coronavirus. (laughs) It was just, I don't know how to describe it. It was like I was living in an alternate universe. It was like, it was like my life that was going on out here. And then there was my life that I was hearing about in here. And I really didn't, I didn't know what to do with it. I thought, oh my God, I'm sleeping with you. I've just had a baby. I mean, when I came to my senses in that first week, what I do remember is 
he could have given me HIV. This is the HIV era. Oh, gosh. He could have given my daughter HIV. Who is he sleeping with? I mean, they're just all of these kinds of things. And then what unfolded over the next week was even more devastating because I found out that he was actually engaged uh, with a man sexually whose wife was also pregnant. They oh, both no. agreed that we would name our daughters the same name. So we have oh, each no. now daughters of the same name. Oh, no. And this, and this man has an agreement with his wife of being in an open marriage. So oh. she knows about all this and she's, I'm the only one that's in the dark here. Does, Everybody she, else know, does she know you? She's met me. We've, we've had two or three kind of, you know, dinners together, but I, she's not. And she knows you don't know. I don't know if she knew that I didn't. Know. Okay. 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 I don't know that to this day. I don't know that. I just remember his name was Ralph and we all agreed to name our daughter, Sarah. And we both have daughters named Sarah right now. And, and so, um, I'm just in information fact finding. I don't want specifics of their engagement sexually with each other as much as I want dates and times. And I, and I'm freaked out. So I'm, I'm working in a hospital and working with a person who ultimately went to work for the Center of Disease Control nationally. So she was like the best contact in the entire world. And I went in there every week for an AIDS test. And finally, she looked <laughs> at me thing. and she said, you cannot have any more AIDS tests. You are <laughs> fine. And you just need to go on with your life. You know, it was f- funny, not funny, is that I did that my, one of my treatment centers, I, I was cut off from HIV tests because I would go like weekly to, to and they were like, that that's not how this works. I'm like, no, 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 we just got to check. I know there's something wrong, you know, like I can't, and they were like, you don't have it. Okay. You're good. You have a lot of mental problems, but no HIV, get back to the treatment center. <laughs> Yeah, that's pretty much what this person said. She said yeah. to me, you know, no it's more testing. Yeah, she says it's upstairs. She goes, you just need to go out. And she said, you need to have some fun. Yeah. So you need to like, you need to go out and allow yourself to have some fun. You need to get sexual again. You need to allow your, your, all of this to, to unfold and grow. I was so, I was like so terrified and, and more terrified. And I would have night terrors where I'd wake up and I couldn't move at night and my head was working, but my body wouldn't move at all. And it was, it was another awful experience. Did you ever think to yourself, like, or did you have like the nagging question around like, was it me? Was it something I said? Was it something I did? But one of my friends who went through this, I always say to her, you know, you, <laughs> I always joke, I, I actually tease her about it at this point, but I say, listen, you could go up to any straight man and you could be as a powerful feminist woman you want. I don't think he's going to be turned gay because of it. I'm not, that's not how that works. And, um, but I do know that women in that situation, there's, there's this nagging question of like, did I do something? Did I, did I trigger it? Did I, you know, was it, was it, you know, what, did you experience any of that? I don't think I, I don't think I felt like I caused it. Well, that's good. I think, I I think I felt less than enough to shift it. I don't think I really understood. Ah, Okay. I mean, you've got to remember this is the 1980s. We didn't understand sexual preference, sexual identity, and the way that we do today. I mean, did that make it worse or better? Oh, I think, I don't know. I don't know. I can only say that, you know, as we get into my story, as I understand my Enneagram type, which we'll talk Mm -hmm. a lot more about, I understand that my particular type would have interpreted in that way. Like there might've been something that I could do to make it different. Uh, Although not, not necessarily with today's understanding of sexuality, the way we did. Right. But with And looking, and I think, you know, it was colored more by my family experience. My father was such a womanizer 
why would my husband turn away from me and choose men? And that was the environment that I was in. So my cultural breeding and understanding and foundation was all around, you know, women support men and they make men and they make them look good and they make them better and they, you know, and they take care of things and and things like that. And what was it that I couldn't do to bring him back or make myself desirable in his eyes or make him want me? And the understanding that I, that grew from just understanding how sexuality works, not just sexual preference, but sexual identity. We know so much more about sexual identity today than we did back then. I mean, back in those days, in the eighties, we talked a lot more about the, about sexual identity being the first sexual marker, sexual preference being the second marker. Today, we know that they're really independent markers. They're, you know, your sexual identity can be on a, as much on a continuum as your sexual preference can be on a continuum. Back then, it was your sexual identity was here or here, right. you know, one or the other, but your sexual preference, I mean, could be on a continuum. Right, right, right. Today, right, right. We, everything's on a continuum. Right. And that was not, so, so if you identified as either male or female, then if you identified as female, there were a whole set of attributes related to being a female that you needed to carry out that were very stereotypical, that might appeal and assist or hurt or harm. And the same thing with masculinity. And that's just not true. You know, there's so many more aspects of that. So I don't think I thought of it in that way, the way that you described. I think I thought of it more of, God, what could I have done to bring him back to being, making myself more desirable? What was wrong with me? Right. That was my journey. It was what was wrong with me, right, right. how to fix what was wrong with me, which at least the question was a great question in terms of encouraging my continued self-discovery right. and self-awareness. Right. So you have, you have very young children and did you, you got married quickly again? To another man I went to high school with. Both of these gentlemen were in my, were in the same graduating class two years ahead of me in high school. <laughs> It was a good class. What can you say? <laughs> uh, so small pool. Yeah, small pool. So did you end amicably with the first husband? Like was he in, in the picture at all or were you friends oh, or no, totally. Yeah. Totally. Yes. Yeah. He was in the picture. We were friends. He actually did die ten years after our divorce from complications of AIDS. And his lover at his eulogy said, I've only been jealous of one woman in my entire life. And that was Jim's ex-wife, Renee, because I've never seen two people love each other more in my entire life. And then the way that they engaged with each other. And my husband, who ex-husband, who was an attorney, decided to uh, specialize in paternity rights for men. And um, I really supported him in his cause because I felt like he was a really good dad. And I didn't understand why dads were never engaged in their children's lives. And having had a father that was really pretty absent in my growing up years, I thought, why would you ever want to, you know, keep a child from having a a loving father involved in their life, period. That just didn't make sense. So Jim, I mean, I was angry with him for a while I remember he was the first person and the only person I've ever attempted to hit in my life here. I remember <laughs> when he told me and we were in our, our kitchen talking, I remember sticking my hands up and I was just going to go, I don't know what I was going to do, pound his chest, but he grabbed <laughs> both of my wrists and he looked at me and goes, you don't really want to hit anybody, do you? And I went, no, I guess I don't really, I just started crying. And 
yes, we were really, really good friends. I actually um, was the person that he asked to plan his funeral when he knew he had AIDS. He, I mean, there was, there was, we were really, 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 really good friends. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I mean, once I, I, at a certain point you realize, you know, there's nothing I could have done. You know, this was, you know, I, I love this person. Right. Well, when I realized that exactly, when I realized sex was off the table and I could just have that friendship that we had had, I mean, I met him two weeks after my 16th birthday and we got married when I was 20. Right. So we grew up together. He taught me how to drive a car and he taught me a lot of things. Right. But, you know, when I realized that that friendship had never gone anywhere, uh, and there was just some self-deceit that it turned into deceit in our relationship. And we had a lot of conversations around that. It was very healing. Yeah. You marry another man and he he ends up being a narcissist and a compulsive gambler. That's correct. Okay. How long in, what was that? How did you get there and what was that? How did you get out of that? So I um, met my second husband about, I want to say six months after my separation, not divorce, but separation. Okay. And so my first husband had been a city planner and then a public. He was a master, he had an MPA master's in public administration and then went to law school. And he had just finished law school when we went through our divorce. And so he was looking for a job. And so he approached a bunch of attorneys in the area. I said, we lived in a little, little teeny suburb, but because it was a small microcosm of Jewish people in this city, he applied for a job from this my second husband as an attorney, because my second husband was also an attorney. So he went there and he applied for this job. And then when my second husband realized we were going through a divorce, he contacted me because we had all gone to high school together. And he goes, you know, I've always thought you were cute, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, would you like to go out? And so we went out. And um, his first name and my maiden name were the same. And I remember like on our first or second date, he said to me, you know, if I marry you, if I married your father, my name would be Warren Warren. I just thought it was pretty funny. <laughs> that was my name. That's so and funny. And he was, he was very funny. He was very bright. He was very gregarious. He had a lot of boldness. And he was, and I had in my head and without any real work, real inner work at all, I had just said to myself, well, I'm going to choose somebody who is exactly the opposite of my husband. So instead of finding somebody who was just straight and a version of my husband, which would have been a really smart choice, yeah, because we did have a wonderful friendship right. and right. and we conducted the business of our marriage in a really responsible, respectful, loving way. I chose somebody who didn't look like him, act like him, it was in no way like him, and he was very narcissistic and very cruel and also very bright. And didn't have any substance abuse issues at all. In fact, he told me he didn't drink. And mm. that was good because I knew my dad's story at that time. So I thought, well, this is all good. Right. He seemed to have a lot of money. So I knew we would, the kids and I would be okay. And turns out that the money that he was getting wasn't just from his law career. It was from a series of, of um, illegal gambling activities. A whole host of Billy had no clue about them other than the fact that I was being wined and dined. And, and so I would come home from a date and there would be a big box in my hallway and there was a mm. full length fox coat oh, uh, wow. inside of the box. And, uh, or right. I'd come home and there'd be a new car in the driveway or oh my gosh. A sofa in my house. Or, so I was like, definitely would, I would have done it, married him too. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I remember, I remember, you know, being told, you know, 
I've, I want you to pack and I've hired a sitter for the kids because he had two children of his own too. My stepkids who I'm very, very close with today. Um, they said, I've hired a sitter for, for your kids and, and my ex has got the kids night and we're going to dinner somewhere, but we're not going anywhere close. So you need an overnight bag and we'd go to New York city and just have dinner and see a show and come home. So, you know, it was just like that magical. It was so, it was magical and I was in so much pain and Mm. it was such a distraction from the pain Yeah, and it's gambling, even though I didn't understand it or uh, whatever left me when he was gone for these periods of time doing what I thought was law business. I had all this special time with my kids alone. So I had time with my kids. I felt special. I felt like a princess. He clearly was very straight and very sexual. So I felt really desired, desirable. And, and I, I don't know, you know, when I say I could have done a lot of self-growth work, this, that, and the other, I don't know that. I mean, obviously this is all part of the plan, right? Right. Right. (laughs) Yeah. It's all part of the plan. It's all part of the plan. It's so true. Yeah. So that, that went on and about a year into it, I realized there was gambling going on and I didn't know how to get out at all. I had a child um, within first year of our marriage. We went, we were in this uh, San Francisco earthquake, like I told you. And um, at at the stadium, we decided to fly there last minute and uh, we had a nanny taking care of our kids and we're already in Arizona. And as we're going through the turnstile and handing the gentleman the tickets for the game, the guy says, taking the tickets, he goes, you know, you're in the nosebleed section. He goes, you're only about two miles from God in these seats. And I was so happy we were in the nosebleed section from oh. when that stadium came down and people were carrying out bits of it. I mean, no, I don't think anybody was killed in the stadium, but being on top of the crowd instead of underneath with pieces coming down. Oh, yeah. It was, was awful. And, and when I realized when we went back nine days later and the game was played, he had 30 thousand dollar bet on the game and that's when i knew we that what i thought might be a problem was a problem so you were seeing or hearing things that were like yeah that's a lot of money here Hmm, that's yes i didn't understand i mean he played in a high stakes poker game twice a week he flew back and forth to las vegas a whole bunch of times because we were living in phoenix now he um went to the horse races. We owned a business at the racetrack, but I knew nothing about gambling addictions. Nobody gambled in my family ever. My dad was the most responsible businessman and, you know, would always say, is this tax deductible? When he would call somebody who would never (laughs) cheat on his taxes. He never uh, saw money as, uh, as a drug in any way. I remember him saying we have to live within our means. I mean, it was never a bill collector after us. There was no signs of any fiscal irresponsibility or any gambling activity in my life at all. The only time I ever remember my father engaging in gambling was once a year. He had a stock club and once a year, these guys would come with their smelly cigars and smell up our house and play poker and, and talk about stocks. And that was the only experience I ever had with gambling that I could recall until I met my husband. Stay tuned to hear more in just a moment. Hi, it's Ashley, your beloved host. When I'm not hosting the Courage to Change a Recovery podcast, I'm running the recruiting department at Lion Rock Recovery. We are always looking for amazing licensed mental health counselors, along with various other sales and operations positions that pop up from time to time. The Lion Rock culture is one of collaboration, support, and flexibility. Our employees work from home offices all over the country, utilizing technology to connect to one another. 
We are always hiring. So if you want to have the best job ever, check out our open positions and apply at www.lionrockrecovery.com backslash about backslash careers. So what are some of the signs? So like, I guess there's a couple questions I have because I've been working on getting a someone who's struggles with gambling on here because I think it's, I, I had a roommate who was a gambling addict and it was crazy, crazy experience, but I still... It wasn't my life and it wasn't my relationship. It was my roommate. What are some of the things, like were there ways you could have seen where what was going on before you got married? Like are there things that you can see without being deeply involved? And what's the difference between someone who likes to gamble here and there and where it's a problem? You know, people always say like it's only a problem if you're losing. But how do you decipher those two different things? Well, that could be a week-long episode. Right. Yes. Um, but I'll give you a couple of okay. Of pointers yeah, yeah, couple, that, couple that, of pointers. Yeah, a couple of pointers. So, gambling is invisible. It doesn't smell. It doesn't make people walk wobbly or raise their voice or talk weird. But what it does do is it it affects. If we talked when we talked about family members being impacted, it affects way more person per addict than anybody else. When you think of the fiscal impact of banking institutions, employers, families, mortgages, college funds. I mean, it, it gambling has a far more profound effect and larger impact, exponential, great word, uh, than, than substance abuse or other, other addictions do, even more than sexual addictions or eating disorders, other behavioral addictions. Wow. So categorically, just for our listeners, you know, substance abuse are a category of addictions that involve ingesting substances. Behavioral addictions are behavioral in nature. And so, you know, eating disorders and um, sexual addictions and, and gambling addictions are considered behavioral disorders. And so you can't see it and you can't smell it. And the interesting thing about family members impacted is they're not typically just codependents. Because you don't know those kinds of things, you're kind of pulled in in ways that you may may not know. So in my particular situation, and and I would encourage every female or every partner in a, in a relationship to be fiscally responsible independently. You know, again, it came from a background where you turn your money over to the man and the man manages money in the house. And, and, and as long as the bills are paid, you know, that's not, so I came out of my first marriage with no money managing skills at all. What I did come out was with a lot of fiscal responsibility in terms of not overspending, but I didn't understand how money worked. So when my ex would tell me and when big money was around the house, I'm going to do this with this and I'm going to do this with this and we're investing here. I just assumed that he was telling me the truth. Right. Why wouldn't he tell me the truth? Nobody had ever lied to me about anything like that in my entire life. I'd never had a history of that happening. We always had, at least initially when we got together, a lot of a lot of prosperity and a lot of fun and things like that. So it just seemed like a good time. And I had no understanding of money. So, you know, being fiscally responsible and understanding finance, how it works, how, you know, checking accounts work, stocks, all that stuff is is just because, a kind of a sideline. Because you could have seen that something didn't add up. So that's where... Absolutely. Okay. Okay. Yes. I could have gone into, you know, today going, I, I encourage everybody because I do a lot of premarital counseling um, and with, a, with some very specific areas that we talk about and money is a huge 
each one. But I encourage everybody to understand, you know, that sharing passwords, transparency, what your agreements are around autonomy with finances, what your agreements are around your collective use of finances. We had none of that. that those understandings, they weren't even on my radar screen as possible things to even have a conversation about because of my background. So, so that happened. So when things started to look wacky was when his attention was going more towards a sporting event than it was on the fact that we had a little baby. Right, right, right. A real like sweating it out kind of thing. Right. When I was pregnant and and getting really close to labor and it was going to be the final basketball tournaments of the and, and, you know, of the year and I'm getting ready to have a baby and he's got a pager now no cell phone yet, but pagers, and he's accepting pages from somebody that I have no clue about, about getting on a plane and flying to Vegas to place a bet, and I'm in pain or not doing well or need some help with the kids, and all of the attention is being taken away from our activities and going into these gambling activities. That's when it was really, really became apparent because when we married, it was like, I want to have more children. I'm so excited about having a large family. He seemed really preoccupied with the health and well-being of his own children. And his attention was there and he was really kind uh, and attentive to my kids. And then all of a sudden, I could slowly see that shift going where his attention was going somewhere else. And all of it was pointing in a direction that something that all of it had, had in common, uh, various gambling, whether it was on sports. He would wake up first thing in the morning after about six months of being married and he'd call a stockbroker. Then he would call his bookie and then to, to place uh, bets on sporting events. And then he would, after work or whatever, would go to a casino and play cards. And it was like, this is, and so our vacations began to be modeled around gambling activities. If it was by car, we'd go to Laughlin. If not, we'd go to Vegas or somewhere on the islands or to New York to watch Thoroughbred or, sorry, not Thoroughbred racing, not New York, the harness horses. I mean, he was everything that we did really focused around some sort of gambling activity. And initially, again, there was probably... I don't think I paid as much attention because it was filled with a lot of fun activities. For yeah. Me. Yeah. So we'd go, let's go to this, you know, ballpark and watch the game being played and let's go to this, you know, horse race. And I'd never been to a horse race in my life and let's go to this casino. And if you don't want to be in the casino activity, why don't you just go spend the time at the spa, mm-hmm. which I love right. to spend a day <laughs> at the spa. And, and then I'd find myself in first row seats to see Elton John and the casino hostess would say, you know, Mrs. S, what can I do for you? And yeah. and all these kinds of things. And I'm going, this is like wonderful right. until it wasn't wonderful. Right. right. And oh. so the spouse or the family members get pulled in with this notion of this while the winning is going on, or even when the winning is being, uh, the losing is being camouflaged and there's still a flood of money and money can come as from your wins. It can come from stealing other people's money. It can come from taking family funds. It can come from a lot, taking loans out and a lot of different things. So, so as long as there's a fresh stash of cash and more access to cash, which is the drug that it takes to gamble money, mm-hmm. right? The family members could be in the dark. Yeah. I you could, I could easily quit. see, I could, I'm, I'm, I'm so relieved. I mean, I could easily see myself falling right down that rabbit hole head first. Oh, I was. I was down that rabbit hole head first. And I would have to say that one of my 
character defects that I'm really constantly working on is the level of naivete. It's like, you know, where is there some beauty in having fresh eyes walking into a situation and where is there less value of having right. fresh eyes walking into a situation, right? Right, right. right. Yeah. yeah. So, so um, yeah, there was less cash. And then I found out that the house payment was, we were behind in the house payment. And then we got a notice that the utilities were going to be turned off. And then he started accusing me of overspending, <laughs> which I absolutely was spending nothing on nothing. We were doing a lot of fun things that he, he you know, began or suggested, right. but... I mean, I would suggest that we take the kids to McDonald's for the for dinner, you know, and, and one day we would be at the Phoenician having uh, a brunch, you know, to the tune of probably $500, $600 for our family. And the next he couldn't give me $20 to go to McDonald's for the for, Right, right. So the role, this roller coaster, and I... I was never uh, in a, aside from the unpredictability of my father's moods, my life, even with my gay husband, our relationship was always pretty status quo. There was not a lot of peaks and valleys, not a lot of moodiness or chaos or, mm. or drama. Mm-hmm. This was filled with drama. And one day, actually, the sheriff, this was actually before we moved to Arizona, and I had no clue that this was related to his gambling at the time. But now, you know, hindsight is always twenty twenty. You're putting things back together, right? The Wayne County sheriffs came to our house in Detroit, in uh, Huntington Woods. We were actually living in Oakland County, but the Wayne County sheriffs from Detroit came to our, our home with guns and rang the doorbell. He was staying at my home in Huntington Woods before we moved here, and wanted to talk to him alone. And I didn't have any clue what that conversation really was all about until we moved here. So it was, they repossessed his car and took a series of other things that I didn't know about. And that's not what he told me happened when uh, they took the car away. They said he was, he told me he was part of a legal investigation and that there was some evidence in his car and that we'd have a loaner car the next day, which of course we did have a loaner car the next day. And I had no clue. It was because of a series of things that were going on related to his gambling yeah, and then just a series of legal things started to happen to me because he was an attorney and put everything that was a liability in my name. I signed documents that were either blank or I didn't understand what they meant or he altered them after I'd signed them. I don't even know. Bought and sold businesses in my name. Oh, my God. And so when we finally separated and divorced, I was aware, literally aware, of being $20,000 in debt when, in fact, we were three quarters of a million dollars in debt. And every piece of that liability was in my name, sole and separate as a, as a um, creditor. And he was off the hook. He had, he had placed every debt in my name. So when I went to bankruptcy court, I had creditors in line screaming at me, people I had never met, businesses I did not know that I owned and creditors coming after me. The bankruptcy attorney held me in contempt of bankruptcy court because I didn't uh, offer them uh, property that was mine. He had sold, he had given me in our divorce a horse uh, that he could no longer feed and uh, the kids rode horses. So I kept the horse and he took the horse from the stables and took it to a Xarban racing traffic track in Nebraska, sold the horse illegally. Bankruptcy attorney came after me for the property, which I said, you can have this horse. I can't feed it. You can have it as part of my debt and loss. And then came to find out that the horse had been sold. So I was held in contempt of bankruptcy court for fraudulently selling a piece of property that I offered uh, as uh, to the bankruptcy court. Oh my God. My jaw is just... I mean, I could go on. When I've talked to 
people about gambling and, and when got certified in compulsive gambling and started to help other counselors learn about compulsive gambling and talk to people like, you know, celebrities, wives who have had compulsive gambling problems. They've said that my story is every bit as crazy as any one of their stories ever was. So, <laughs> sorry, I'm processing. So you... <laughs> You want to call me back tomorrow? Yes, seriously. <laughs> oh my God, I thought coronavirus was throwing me for a loop here. Okay, so let me get this straight. Every single debt was in your name, three quarters of a million dollars? That's correct. And every liability and, was, and was placed in my name. How is it that there was no trail or paper trail or no one had ever interacted with you? And so how did they not see that this person had done this? How was that not evident? You, How was it not evident that your ex-husband or soon-to-be ex-husband sold the horse? Like you weren't... He fraudulently put my name on the paper. So I had to hire a handwriting expert to come into the bankruptcy hearing to confirm that that was not my handwriting on the sale of that horse, nor was it my handwriting on many of the tax returns. I mean, he fraudulently put my name on businesses he purchased. These were transactions that happened without a person present, so there was no way to know who was doing them? He was an attorney. Right. So he was my legal right. representation uh, and he signed my name for all these things. And when I had, when I was in going through the divorce and I couldn't even afford to hire an attorney, I was very, very fortunate. There was a gentleman by the name of George Sterling here in Arizona. I don't even know if he's still alive, but he agreed to take my uh, case and very reduced fee and, and even brought in the handwriting experts. I couldn't, I couldn't afford anything at all. And he said, you're, this is just too sad. Let me see what I can do to help you out. <laughs> Gosh. Well, I'm glad. I mean, thank God. And so, okay. So that's wild. Um, how does this affect the kids? Like what's going on with the kids and how, how are you, what, what's happening? That's a great question. It happens to be my, my stepson's birthday today. So it's Aww. really kind of a sweet, sweet thing to talk about. And I, he, I think he, he doesn't believe a lot of what's gone down about his, his father. It's probably very hard for him hardest for him to be, to take in all of what's gone on because of a dynamic that occurs, I think occurred in, in our marriage. And I think it occurs with several marriages too. So when I quit going on these gambling junkets and realized there was a problem, one of the ways that I was punished was he took my stepson instead and started to talk to my stepson about just how stupid I was and awful I was. And what a fool I was for not wanting to go and how it was going to give them so much time, quality time together. And now he was the gambling buddy and he became his dad's little kind of accomplice and, and confidant. And um, so he really became alienated from the rest of the kids because he was now being taken on all these sweet journeys that I refused to go on. And I was left with them to try and make ends meet. This is during our, while the marriage was still happening. And so he would take our son, my stepson, off to Vegas, and he would throw me 20 bucks and say, here's money for the weekend. And this Take was care of the what kids. year? This is 1980. Okay, so in the 80s. In the 80s, 88, 89. So, and you so had, do you have, how old are the children at this point? So I have four children, all of them under the age of 13, to take care of for from Thursday to Sunday with, for, with 20 bucks. And um, a lot of ramen. that includes gas and food and anything that we could conceivably do. And then he'd tell me I was a poor money manager when he'd, I'd come home and I couldn't take care of it. Yeah. Uh, and in the meantime, he'd come home 
with our stepson and they would have had the time of their life. And the rest of the kids would look at me like, you know, I, I don't think they had a bad time with me and we would be really creative. We'd go to the park, we'd play games, we'd sing songs, we'd do, you know, draw on t-shirts. We did a lot of things. I'm, I'm, a, I love being a creative mom. I've been one of my, we'd cook together and bake together and do all sorts of things together, but it was nothing compared to the experience that, you know, that my stepson had with his father. And every once in a while, my stepdaughter would be in town too. So I had five kids most of the time and six kids every once in a while. And my stepdaughter thought, I don't think she believed any of this was real or true until everything really came down because she's the oldest of, of them all. And I think she really saw things for, for what was going on. But the kids started to turn, uh, especially the boys, started to turn against each other. So the two oldest, so my eldest is oldest biological son and my stepson are uh, 17 months there's 17 months difference and the only two boys in the whole equation. So you had two with your first husband, two with your second husband. Right. And then he had two. And then he yeah. had two, a boy and a girl. Right. Okay. So there are four, four daughters and two sons. So the boys started to kind of turn against each other. And my little ones were really, really little at this time. They were so small that I think my my biological, all four of my biological children, I don't think they felt the full ramifications because they had their two little baby sisters to focus on. And there really was just a ton of stuff that we did. I mean, a ton of stuff. I could tell you some creative things that people can do with no money like you would not believe. I took my kids to every high school Broadway play you could conceivably see. So they know every song from everything. I went to see them all on Broadway, but my kids went to see them all in high school and they know every song too. Wow. Um, right. um, you blog about that. Yeah, really? Yeah. Really? Should, I could. Should, yeah. Resources. Yeah. There's so many things I could do to help other people. In yeah. Me. Sometimes I feel like my heart is just wants to do so much. So that's the, and the kids uh, each have their own kind of relationship to money. All of them. Yeah. All of them. Sure. Except for my, all of them, except for my stepson are the most fiscally responsible adults you've ever met in your life. I'm sure. I'm and sure. And they've all paid for college on their own, paid for their own weddings, paid for their own cars. They're just brilliant, brilliant people. My stepson still struggles at times with what the meaning of money is, how money works. I think he, you know, I just feel like he's, he's been the one that's been the most drastically impacted because he was in gay. And I, I feel for that because I know how you can get swept up in that mm -hmm. as an adult. Mm -hmm. I can only imagine without the ability to have a real strong executive functioning, how you could get swept up in that as a kid. So when basically you're losing everything and more and everything, everything and what you don't have as well, and you have your four children, what are you telling them or, or at least the two older, Jim, the first husband's older, your older children, how are you explaining to them like, oh, we went from this big life to I don't know what we're going to do now? Well, I've told them that there's a gambling problem and okay. that there's, there's that there's something wrong with their dad and it's not because he doesn't love them. Right. I mean, I've been one of the things about having a strong addictions background is that yeah. as, as the, under, the greater my understanding was of gambling addiction, the greater my ability to share with them that this was a sickness and that was it was, you know, it was um, something that could be handled if he was going to get some help and would look at it. So I. I divorced him for financial reasons with the understanding that we would reconcile if he got some help. That was our agreement. Okay. And that didn't happen for a variety of reasons. I think, I don't know. Well, he died before 
anything else could happen. We could talk more about that in a little bit. I I have two questions. I want to know what happened with him and what happened, how you got through the divorce. And then I also want to know about, we have a lot of guests on here and I talk to a lot of women who get swept up in relationships with narcissist men that just, just completely dissolve their lives. I know that that was a theme for you after your second husband. So take us through kind of what, how, how you got through this bankruptcy, you know, and then what was it in you that engaged with these narcissist men? You know, my father was quite narcissistic. I don't think he had a narcissistic personality disorder, but my father had a lot of narcissistic tendencies. And I think it's important to distinguish between narcissism, narcissistic personality traits, narcissistic personality disorders. Yes. Yes. Because it's very healthy to have some level of narcissism. Okay. We all need to regard ourselves. We all need to think of ourselves first with, with, you know, with little regard for yourself or concern for how things work in your life. You really can't develop healthy self-esteem. I have a question about that. So what is the difference between, so healthy, when you say healthy narcissism, I think to myself, well, isn't that self-esteem, not narcissism? Like, is can narcissism be healthy or when it's healthy, isn't it self-esteem and self-regard, not narcissism? Well, narcissist, narcissism is a quality, you know, you know, when you look and you see yourself and you regard yourself and you think of yourself, it's almost like the difference between being selfless and selfish and self-focused. You know, if you're self-focused self-focused being the medium. So selfish is you do any, you do things without any regard for how it impacts other people. That's a narcissistic personality disorder. Okay. Got it. Self-focused is I take care of myself self so that I can better focus on other people. And it requires a certain level of an, of narcissism or self-regard to, in order to be self-focused. And selfless is something that Mother Teresa could talk to us about. I really can't because that's really not considering yourself and having such strong faith that all of your needs will be taken care of and acting in ways that where your faith guides you and carries you without any concern. And there's probably very little I was going to say there at all. And and yeah. and probably very few people who do that because even selfless people often are doing it to be the martyr or they're doing like the 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 actual motivations deep down of what appears to be selflessness, right? We can we could say that there's probably very little pure selflessness, right? Yes. Yes. Right. Yeah, it's very hard to function on planet Earth in that yeah. way. Right. It really is, yeah. you know. Yeah. Considering your need for food, shelter, and clothing, and some other, you know, things that we've taken to believe that we we need. So I, I, I say that, and I wanted to start there because I think that you know, if you've been groomed by and grown up with a caretaker that's narcissistic, it's especially if it's the parent of, that's your love object. So if you're gay, it's the same sex parent. If it's if it's if you're straight, it's the opposite sex parent. Um, But I don't think it really matters. If you've been around caregivers who are narcissistic, it's your norm. It's what you believe to be the normal way that things function in the world. And so you learn very quickly to set your own needs aside and to respond to the needs of other people as being primary and uh, more important than yours. It's just kind of the way things go. And your self-esteem gets hampered in ways that, you know, are 
related to the way that narcissism has showed up in those early caregiving childhood relationships. The way that it showed up for me was with a very narcissistic dad and a very naive, really, really naive mother who just kind of went along with anything. I look at all the cultural influences as we kind of talked about earlier and the narcissism and, and I was just a breeding ground for choosing narcissistic men in my life. And so even my gay husband was somewhat narcissistic, but not nearly as narcissistic as, as my second husband and my father and my primary relationship before my current marriage. And we'll, we'll, I'm sure we'll get to that. So, so that's kind of where I wanted to start. Now, your second question again was, so I can respond to that, or your first question was? My second question was, uh, what happened as, so take us through this bankruptcy court, you get these handwriting experts. How do you make it through that? I decide to, I'm really good at making lemonade out of lemons. I, so, I can hear that. <laughs> yes. And so I think to myself, Arizona is a community property state. There is no reason after watching this legal battle and after, after you know being exposed to now two attorney husbands that any other female should go through this. So I decide, because Arizona is a community property state, that I want to understand community property law and I want to make sure every other female that's exposed to gambling does not go through what I do. And it was a very ripe idea at the time because Prop 202 in the state of Arizona was on the ballot and it was about treating people impacted by problem gambling and not just problem gamblers. At that time, I sat on the Arizona Lottery Board for Gambling Issues, and they asked me to come off of that board if I were to be a treatment provider because I had the credentials to accept uh, state funds for people impacted by problem gambling, which meant family members as well as the gamblers themselves. So my agency, uh, I decided, well, I have to backtrack. I decided to get my license up off the ground again. I had let go of my license because when I moved, my behavioral health license was no good in Arizona when I moved here in 1988. We We were a state that just had certification and not licensure. We had no idea we were moving towards licensure. And so when licensure came in in 2003, I had no clue that uh, I was going to need a license. I had relinquished my state license from Michigan. What was I going to do? It was no good, and I wasn't going back there. So I got my license as a substance abuse therapist because it was the only thing based on my credentials they would allow reciprocity for. God knows why. That's a whole nother huge issue because I was certainly qualified. Yeah, I was qualified as a psychologist yeah. in another state. I was yeah. marriage and family therapist, but oh, yeah. they let me sit for the board for addictions work. And I passed that. And so I was a licensed addictions counselor and they let me treat compulsive gamblers through the state of Arizona. And I opened up an agency and with three locations and the help of about 12 other therapists, we treated thousands of people impacted by problem gambling. And I started to talk to legal groups about community property law and the concept of waste and what that meant and how it was different from other addictions and the difference between substance abuse and gambling addictions and served on the National Council for Problem Gambling and became a board-approved clinical consultant to help gambling counselors help understand the difference between substance abuse and problem gambling and how they treated both the gambler and family members. And really, really, I mean, it was I was on a mission to make sure that no other woman would go through this. And I know that they still do, but I did my best to, you know, see that that was, uh, was at least taught in, in trainings and, and, and things like that. So, um, I am divorced. This is going to backtrack. This is before now uh, all of that. I'm divorced now from my second husband 
And right after the divorce of my second husband, I find out that my first husband has AIDS and will probably not make it. And so in 1995, September of 95, I went through my second divorce from my gambling husband. In May of 1996, my first husband dies of AIDS. And in August of 1997, uh, my second husband's aorta explodes on the way home from a casino and he dies at a hospital uh, near our home. So within less than two years, I have gone through my second divorce and buried my first and second husbands. And the father of your children. Fathers of my children. And I have to share with you, this is a really odd statement, but I think it's an important one in terms of understanding family dynamics. Yeah. The time between my first husband's death and my second husband's death was really hard because two of my kids had a dad and two did not. And when my second husband passed away and all four of the kids were without fathers, actually all six of the kids now without fathers, it brought those children together in a way that I could have never brought them together. They are each other's best friends. They rely on each other. They have family network that is just unbelievably kind and strong and loving with each other. Wow. Yeah, I could see that. I could, I could, because you have, you know, siblings are so close to begin with and to be able to support, have moved through the process, the first two to support the second two who are younger too is, is, uh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. The older four really did focus their attention on raising their baby sisters. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Wow. So he, and, and was, do they think that was stress related? Do they, I mean, totally stress related. They found a gun in his belongings when we went to his house. We don't know if he was avoiding bad guys or going after bad guys. He had taken out a million dollar, a million dollar life insurance policy on his mother, his mother, who never believed he had a gambling problem and accused me of being just a, a poor manager of money. Uh, and I encouraged her to go to gammon on with me. I can't tell you how many times. When she found out that the um, premium came due for the uh, for her life insurance, and she actually saw in writing what I was telling her to be true, that he had taken out a million-dollar life insurance policy on his own mom, finally came to grips with the fact that this is something's wrong. And many of his creditors, just like they came after me in the divorce, he remember now we have been divorced for almost two years, they came after his mother for money now and his children. So they came after our two kids, his two kids for money. They came out for his he, children? Because he had signed off on oh, his no. life insurance, giving them liens on his life insurance policy. And he had sold his children's college funds and all sorts of things to pay off his gambling debts. Oh, that makes me want to cry. How heartbreaking. And, and were your children able to feel that he was desperate, like that this was desperation and that he loved them or or was that, were they able to hold those two things in the same place the way that you eventually did? I think so. I mean, you know, they, all of them have memories of him being really, really funny and taking them to sporting events and even, you know, trying to teach them new things. And when he was there very much present to be the fun person. If there was anything serious that had to be dealt with, he was not the person to engage with them. But he still, almost up until the very end, he had a lot of positive interaction with them around being what some people might call, call a Disneyland dad. I mean, he's, he did a lot of scary things that I reacted to. Like he took all of the kids, the two little ones, 
and his biological children, my stepkids, to California with my consent for three days and came back five days later. And I had to file a missing persons report because I had no idea where my daughters were and dropped them off at one o'clock in the morning by beeping and dropping a four-year-old and a three-year-old off at the sidewalk. But they all, they all, they didn't know anything's wrong. They thought it was just lots of great fun. Right. So here I am taking them in crying and they have no earthly idea why yeah. I'm so upset. So they are um, they like, mom, you're just so dramatic. Jeez. Not at three and four. Yeah. Oh yeah. They're three. They don't, they don't, they're, they don't get it. They yeah. don't get it. You know, they, I'm just, and I'm just finally, you know, to a place where I don't know that they even heard or understood what was going on. They just thought I was probably crying because I was so happy and I missed them. Right. That's probably what the, you right. know, their interpretation of that. Cause when I've talked to them, you know, and I really tried very, very hard to have open gambling conversations with them at their, at, at an age appropriate level. But their dad told them, it's so funny. They'll say, dad said, don't ever use the G word. And I go, what's the G word? And they said, gambling. They said, you can talk about anything else, but never talk about the G word, especially if it's in front of one of my girlfriends or, or something else that's going on. Don't ever bring it up. And they, they literally thought for the first five, six years of their life that it was a cuss word to use that word. Oh, wow. The G word, gambling. Oh, yeah. I mean, kind of was. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you pick yourself up, put yourself back together. You house your children and I go through bankruptcy court. I get a mortgage. I actually borrow money from my brother and from my father to get a a household loan. I go to the mortgage lender and he says, there's a paper, B paper, C paper, and you have toilet paper, but we're going to get you into a house. He said, you default on this loan and I'm going to be in big trouble. I said, I will never default on a loan again. I promise as long as I live because I will learn everything there is to understand about money and how it works. And and I my credit score today is 835. I worked really, really, really hard to clean everything. I mean, I can't even tell you how important that is to me. So I get a house. I've got my four bio kids and uh, I never see my stepkids during this time. Um uh, at all. In the meantime, I guess I have to backtrack a bit. When I finally decide I'm going to leave, I go to my obstetrician because I've got a baby that's relatively young still. She's three years old. And I said, I'm going to leave. And she said, you don't have a job. You don't have any way to make money. Tell me your husband's got a gambling problem and how exactly are you going to do this? So I come up with a way to leave and he decides he wants to take us on vacation to Vegas and the whole family to Vegas. And I say, can we please go to Florida instead to see my family. And he says, no, I'm going to Vegas. And I said, how about if we go and all you have to do is get us there airfare wise to see my family in Florida and you and your son can go to Vegas. And the reason I want to go to Florida is because my ex-husband is there and he's an attorney and I know he'll help me file for divorce. Right. So I get there. The sad part is that I have my stepdaughter with me because she doesn't want to go to Vegas with her dad. So all of this happens in Florida while she's with me. And I have to explain to her that I've filed for divorce from her dad. And my ex-husband, who is uh, in Orlando, has agreed to take the kids and help me out with them in whatever way I need help and help me with all the legal stuff. We were really, really tight. That's another example of how close we were. And um, he helps me get through the legal aspects of, of at least the filing. Then my children do something unprecedented, and that is they tell me that they are absolutely not going back to Michigan. I mean, to Arizona, they want to stay in Arizona. I mean, they don't want to stay in Florida. They want to go back to Arizona. Sorry, getting all these states mixed up. So they say and they're not going back to Florida. The- they don't want to stay in Florida. They want to go back home. They miss their friends. They miss this. And they decide they're going to have a mutiny. 
So Nicole, I know my oldest is going to go back home because she's my stepdaughter and she's going to go be with her mom in a safe place. Thank God. Uh, and my four bios are just devastated. They do, none of them want to stay there, even though their cousins are there and they're hanging out and they're having a great time. And so I'm sit down with the kids and I said, you know, if we go back to Arizona, it's going to be a real struggle. I've got no money. I've got nowhere to go. I've gotten, they said, can't you please just borrow some money and get us a small house? We'll all do whatever we can. And that's what I did. That's when I borrowed the money from my mom and my, I mean, my dad and my brother and um, got this little teeny house and started putting things back together and studied every night to get my license back on board in the state of Arizona. I find out I can't use my own license, but I get a, a license as a substance abuse therapist and find out that the state is now in, uh, looking at compulsive gambling as a problem. I mean, it was like all these opportunities began to drop into my lap. And I opened my agency uh, with the help of uh, another gentleman who was like a guardian angel, Michael Brubaker, who used to be the state spokesperson for compulsive gambling here in the uh, 80s. He actually just passed away recently, helped a gazillion people. And he talks to me for three times. I go to him as a counselor. After my third visit, he goes, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, ma'am. He goes, we're going to open an agency and treat some compulsive gamblers because you know more about this than most people have forgotten, and you've got a real strong background in addictions. And I go, <laughs> help some gamblers? You want me to help gamblers? I'd like to kill them. <laughs> and he goes, no, oh. when you understand this addiction, you'll realize this wasn't done to you, just like the, you know, yeah, right. your whole history. So I trust him. We open up this agency in Scottsdale. He has to lend me his credit to even turn on the utilities because I've got nothing. And then we open up after he leaves the agency a few years later and I'm on my own. I open up another one in Prescott, another one in Mesa. And we are literally treating hundreds of families every week in this counseling center that, that have been impacted by gambling and doing work that's just amazing work teaching people not just about the differences between gambling and substance abuse, but how to protect themselves as family members and what they can do and how to heal the relationships and all sorts of things like that. Another, I think a thing just to mention, I, I lived in Prescott for um, some time and, and I, I lived in Arizona for a while. And one of the things that if you haven't been to Arizona or you're not familiar is that there are a lot of casinos or a lot of Indian casinos in Arizona in particular. And it's right, you know, we, you would drive to Laughlin and you drive to Vegas. And so that kind of in Arizona, those are kind of regular spots that people go to. People, right. people go to the casino, whereas in where I live, I mean, you can drive to the casino, but it's a drive. They're not regularly around. So I think that's another piece that w you were in one of the epicenters of where, yes. of where this needed to be addressed. Yes, that's so true. Yeah. So you go through the, um, so you put your life back together. You're starting to help people with gambling and how do you discover the Enneagram and how does that play into your recovery? It's so, so I just to say this. I had a therapist who had me do it. I'm a, I, I don't know, I know very little. I'm an, I'm an eight wing seven and between a two and a three. Eight wing seven. Okay. Well, you might be an eight with a seven wing that, that has uh, a lot of uh, lookalike characteristics with the three, but has a line to two. Got it. Okay. So, and I could show you an Enneagram map and we could have a, and I yeah. would love to offer offer you a continued conversation oh, around it. that if you'd like as a oh, yeah. kind of I would love it. Thank you for this. But um so I've decided that I'm gonna do a lot of work on myself. And I for the first time in my life decide I don't want a personal partner. And so I spend <laughs> some time I cannot imagine why. 
Yeah. So I, I, I date, I date and I have some relationships, but I don't want anything permanent. And in this process of five to seven years of being by myself, I discover, do a lot of self-discovery work, go inside, find my own inner territory where things really, really make a difference. And I can make some changes and take a look at what's important to me. And a lot of things begin to shift in my life. And as they do, I keep being reintroduced to a gentleman that owns a treatment center in Prescott that uh, is for gamblers. And I keep seeing him at conference after conference after conference after conference. And he, this is almost 10 years after I've been alone. Is that right? Close to it. About eight years after I've been alone and dated a handful of people, but nothing serious. Uh, He um, and I get into a relationship and One of the things that was the most intriguing thing about the relationship is that he introduces me to the Enneagram and we're at a conference and he says, you know, I think he goes, you are a brilliant clinician. He goes, but I wonder if you have ever used this ancient tool called the Enneagram. And I think the word may sound familiar, but it it doesn't. And after the conference and talking to him, I go to Barnes and Noble directly after this conference and I begin to read book after book after book and I have never, ever, ever been more interested in a topic related to my career or my life than that. So Mm. the more I learn, the more I realize I don't know, the more complicated it is. And the reason that I think it holds such great interest amongst many for me is that it is a holistic tool. It helped me to answer my question, why don't people get well and why can't they stay well? And we could have another entire podcast on that, on the Enneagram, its utility for recovery, because it is dynamic. And I'll give you some resources for that if you'd like. We may have to have Um, you back and talk about it too. Thank you. But I I meet this gentleman, he owns a gambling treatment center, and we forge a relationship and, and we stay in relationship for about eight years. I dive deep into the Enneagram and I meet all these people in recovery all over the world, because one of the things that he loves to do is to travel to every gambling treatment conference, whether they're lay conferences, professional conferences. I meet people in the international gambling conferences and state conferences and teach and train and really, really understand gambling addictions and and the Enneagram at the same time and actually created a product of each type in recovery that's used the Enneagram for both their substance abuse and problem gambling recovery. So I have a, a 10 and a half hour Uh, video film series with each of the nine types describing how the Enneagram came into their life in recovery, how it helped with looking at their addiction, how it helps in the resilience of their recovery, and how what they would like other people to know that are considering using the Enneagram in their recovery. So I did that formal filming about uh, five years ago now. It's just a really cool tool. So I have the Enneagram, I've always specialized in wellness, relationships, and addictions. Those have been my three areas. If you look at the credentials after my name, it's, you know, the relationship stuff is the marriage and family stuff, and the wellness stuff is the uh, licensed massage therapist, and I'm a holistic healthcare practitioner, and a ton of other things, and and uh, the addiction stuff speaks for itself all over my yeah. <laughs> career. Yeah. And so the Enneagram works with all of it, though, because it talks about or addresses these patterns, neurobiological patterns that we each possess that describe how our executive functioning works, how our limbic functioning works, 
how our reptilian functioning works and our reactivity in terms of the somatic experiences in our body, as well as the fact that it came from this very, very ancient spiritual place that talked about the Enneagram initially used as nine types who had obstacles in their awareness of a larger creator or God and what they would need to do to overcome those obstacles way before the birth of psychology, obviously, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Spirituality. So that those are the roots were spiritual. And now it's got, you know, all of this use in business and psychology. And it is my mission to bring it into the addictions treatment field. And, and also with, with trauma, um, Dan Siegel, who is an expert in trauma, he, everybody loves Dan. He's just amazing. He's, he's, a, and he knows the Enneagram. He also knows the neurobiology of type. So I'm hoping that, you know, some of his continued work will reveal some of the neurobiology we see of type at birth and how it relates to attachment and perhaps even trauma resiliency and recovery. So the Enneagram is, it is, it, I realize that, you know, sometimes we don't find out what our purpose is until later in life, but I wake up thinking about the Enneagram. I go to bed thinking about the Enneagram. My kids tease me about the Enneagram. My friends tease me about the Enneagram. I do not think that the Enneagram is to be used as a superficial, what's your type baby kind of thing. I just finished a six hour basic training on the Enneagram that's being edited right now for people who want to use the Enneagram as more than just understanding their type and how it's really a self-development tool. So not like a horse, like I'm a Capricorn and yeah. That's exactly right. <laughs> yeah. Although there's nothing wrong with astrology when you yeah. know oh, expensive yeah. astrology, right? Right, right. So, um, so I shouldn't tattoo my Enneagram on... <laughs> <laughs> you could if you wanted to. And, you know, for people who start there, you know, you have to start somewhere, right? Totally. And then uh, I just finished an ebook with uh, 35 questions for counselors, coaches, and spiritual directors considering bringing the Enneagram into their practice, and that should be available at the end of this month. So the Enneagram is my Life. life's work. Yeah. 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 And so I thank I thank my past partner for yeah. for that experience and today I am in a loving marriage uh, with a man who is emotionally available, spiritually available, physically available, has 35 years almost of recovery in alcoholism, lives and works the program of recovery and incorporates the Enneagram into his recovery too. I love that. Got certified and trained in the Enneagram because he knew it was important to me initially and then found out it was an incredible gift in his own path and recovery. So yeah, it's been like a, a long journey and I'm sure it's not anywhere near over, but this is this is the story to date. It's amazing. It's such an amazing story. And it's so, you know, we get forced into these. I, I was just sort of giggling to myself about how like you, you ended up at all these gambling things and all these gambling conferences. And that's what happens is that you get so deeply affected by something, something you never wanted anything to do with, right? And you get right. you get so deeply affected by it. It's like there's nothing else you can do. But it it, it, it just be, it, it almost, it must change your neurochemistry because it, it, it literally becomes like, I honestly, even if I wanted to do something else, I couldn't, I have to pursue this thing. And, and I, I just, I just completely understand that and, and experienced that. And I see it happen a lot to other people, you know, we, with topics where you, you never wanted to be you know, you never thought you would and you never wanted to be there, but then you find your own recovery as well through this horrendous experience. 
And and I, I just love that. And I, I love the hope there. And, you know, with the with the Enneagram, my, you know, briefly before we we wrap, can you tell people a little bit about is there a way to describe what the Enneagram is for people? Sure. You know, to just to give it like a, you know, obviously yeah. it's a very top level. Yeah. So the Enneagram actually the word refers to a map or an illustration. And any other word, any means nine. It's a nine-pointed diagram. And the nine-pointed diagram is relatively new. It's probably been in existence about a hundred years. And it is a culmination of the work of a lot of people from a long, long time ago, uh, all the way through today, discussing what today would be considered the, the, the nine personality types. And with a caveat on the nine personality types, because personality is nothing more than a strategy that we use to manage life. We are not our personality. Many people describe themselves by using characteristics of their personality, but we are spiritual beings having a human experience. But as spiritual beings having a human experience, we need to have a strategy to manage life. And so that strategy to manage life way that we incorporate that strategy is to pull in personality. Personality has to have some way of managing fear, which is the ego's involvement, and some way of just moving through life. And so we collect these experiences in life. We develop these early childhood beliefs. We have this way of managing fear. We have all sorts of other things that are magical that we don't know. Perhaps the stardust gave us something unique and specific. And then the spiritual aspect of the Enneagram recognizes that we, in the contraction of becoming a human being from spiritual essence, we each come away with one very, very important um, gift from God, one of nine gifts. And that when our ego relaxes, and it can as a human being, and our, <laughs> when our ego relaxes, we actually have the availability of seeing all of those essential qualities of being godlike or having a spiritual nature and that we could go into so much more about yeah. the Enneagram, but you can only imagine the value oh, that huge. this has for recovery. People who walk in with shame and realize it's nothing but their type that's running the show. And that is they understand the type, their own type. They have a particular journey to recovery that no other type has. That they have resiliency, strengths, and gifts that no other type has, as well as the challenges that no other type has. They grow tolerant of the fact that there are other types in the world that do not see things the same way. They grow in acceptance. The unity of the program becomes a whole lot easier. Moving through the denial of addiction becomes a whole lot easier because there's a defense mechanism that's really a preferred defense mechanism by each type. Like I said, I am really giving a very Reader's Digest condensed version yeah, of a yeah. very important subject. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I would love to, if you, I would love to have you back on to talk about the Enneagram and, and, you know, in further detail, if that's ever something that's interesting. I would love to do that. And I would love to offer some, the listeners, some other things that they can do too. Yeah, that yeah. would be awesome. That would be awesome. So there are, there are several resources on my website, which is urpurepotential.com, the letter U, the letter R, and then purepotential.com. And you'll see that there are resources of the ebook that will be coming out that should be posted soon. There's for counselors and coaches and spiritual directors. Uh, that book has been written. There is a free continuing education credit that you can take 
uh, whether or not you want the CEU or not. It's free in terms of understanding the Enneagram and its utility in addictions and mental health treatment. And then there's a 20-hour continuing education course for using the Enneagram uh, as a recovery coach or a recovery counselor. Uh, and I am a NADAC provider of the National Association of Alcoholism and Drug Abuse Counselors. So um, there's a whole protocol. That is for purchase. That That is a pay-for 20-hour uh, CEU. But the others are free. Um, I encourage you to fall in love with the Enneagram in the way that I have. I guarantee you, whatever you, wherever your journey begins or ends with it, it will, uh, will awaken self-awareness in a way that you never anticipated. Yeah, yeah. That's, it's amazing. So you are purepotential.com. That's you, the letter U, R, the letter R, purepotential.com. Renee, you are just absolutely amazing, pure potential. I adore you. I really do. And uh, it's really just been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for allowing me to go deep with you on your story. And um, I really do. I mean it when I say I want to have you back on to talk about stuff. Well, I, I want to express my appreciation. You know, I tell bits and pieces of my story as it's relevant in terms of teaching and training, but this is the first time I've ever actually told this much of my story at one point in time. So I know that you've given me a gift of just healing other things that have been sitting out there and maybe never making the connectivity to other parts of my story. And I'm very, very grateful for that. Oh, oh it's been my pleasure. Truly. Thank you so much. Thank you. This podcast is sponsored by Lion Rock Recovery. Lion Rock provides online substance abuse counseling where clients can get help from the privacy of their own home. They are accredited by the Joint Commission and sessions are private, affordable, and user-friendly. Call their free helpline at 800-258-6550 or visit www.lionrockrecovery.com for more information.